During this episode, hear the answers to more of your listener wedding planner questions. Hi there, I'm Debbie Quain. You're listening to another episode of Weddings for a Living. Weddings for a Living is an online talk show and an online resource for you if you are a new or an aspiring professional wedding planner. Today's episode is 395, so weddingsforaliving.com slash 395. And it's actually part two of a live broadcast that I held to answer your listener submitted questions. So if you listen to if you want to listen to part 1, you go to weddingsforliving.com/394. Today's episode is weddingsforliving.com/395. So here are some of the questions that were submitted that I'm going to answer that you're going to hear a replay of me answering. Questions such as what are the top 5 things to do to become a wedding planner? What is the best form of advertising for a wedding planner? How do I deal with ageism in the wedding industry? Uh, I'm being considered for a same-sex wedding, but I'm clueless. What should I do? Where do I go to get wedding planner training? How do I price my wedding planner services? There's a question about save the date etiquette. And should I work with my client, the bride, or her rather controlling mother, who, by the way, is footing the bill? Yikes. Okay, so listen on for the replay. I hope it helps. The picking up where we left off, this question came in from Danisha. I hope I'm saying your name correctly, Danisha. And her question is, what are the top five things to do to start being a wedding planner? Okay, good question. There are different routes that you can take. But the five things I think that are important to get started is that you have to have some hand, get hands-on experience planning, executing weddings. It needs to be more than one. It needs to be more than two. And it needs to be in a capacity that it's an event, not just your own event, although that's great, but get into the habit of working with others, translating what it is that somebody else wants and how you can take their ideas and their desires and make that into, into an event that makes sense for them that is happy for that, that works for them. And then you'll have an idea, not, not only what the flow of a wedding involves, but how to, how it is to interpret what different people, what people are asking you for. So definitely hands-on experience. And I hear that's a big thing. A lot of us get set up as wedding planners and then say, well, I don't have clients and clients want me to have experience. I don't have clients to have experience, but there are a lot of opportunities for you to get involved with weddings, friends, family members, putting the word out that you're looking for hands-on experience and talking to vendors and venues, and we don't do this enough, but if you talk to vendors, professional wedding vendors in your area, let them know that you're interested in becoming a professional wedding planner or that you're already there, if that's the situation, and getting a chance to work with them, not to get in the way, but to benefit them so that you can see how it is to work an event from their point of view. And all of this is adding to your experience. The next thing I would suggest starting as a wedding planner is to talk to wedding planners in the field. There's a, there's a bit of an illusion as to what planning a wedding involves. 
a wedding is a happy event. It's hopefully a once in a lifetime event. But there are a lot of work. There's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes. Most of what you're doing happens long before the wedding day arrives if you're offering full service. It's a lot of lists, it's a lot of details, a lot of following up, a lot of hand-holding. I know in a lot of the descriptions for professional wedding planners, you'll hear the term that, you'll hear the statement that you need to be into details, detail-oriented, and it's the truth. Missing one detail can have catastrophic effect. Uh, can have a catastrophic, that's what happens when I try to use big words, can have a catastrophic effect on the wedding day. And maybe that's a little overboard, but forgetting to confirm with the limo company that the wedding is at 9 p.m. and not 9 a.m. or vice versa could make could be a huge deal, something that's completely overlooked. So you have to pay attention to details. Is that what it says on the contract? Are we both on the same page? Things like that. So definitely you want to talk to other planners in the field to see what it, what is their day like? What is what what is their involvement? And most wedding planners contrary to popular belief are operating their business part-time. The celebrity wedding planners that you see and hear about that are in the mainstream are not the typical wedding planners in your area for the most part. Planning weddings 100% of the time and only planning weddings doesn't bring in a whole lot of income for most people. Usually you have to supplement that by doing some other things. You can still stay within the wedding industry, but because most couples do not hire a full-service wedding planner, limits the amount of customers that you'll have. The next thing I think you need to do, one of the top five things to do to start being a wedding planner is to make sure there's demand. Make sure there's a need for professional wedding planning services in your area. For the most part, if you live in a metropolitan town, city area, you'll be okay for the most part. But that's not a hard and fast rule. It's a little more difficult to get clients when you're living in a rural area, smaller towns. People tend to rely on community to get things like a wedding put together. And there needs to be enough money. Some of what your clients need to have, your potential clients need to have the money to be able to afford to hire you as a wedding planner. So please make sure there's demand. Don't guess. Don't just view things from your point of view. Go out there and talk to vendors again. Do research. See what the number, how many people are getting married in your neck of the woods. What's the real deal when it comes to weddings? How much how much money are people spending on their weddings? Because if the budget for the average wedding is low, let's say it's not passing $20,000, you're going to struggle to make a significant amount of money. The next thing I would suggest, one of the so the top so far I said get hands-on experience, talk to planners in the field and make sure there's a demand. So we're going through the top 5 things to do to start being a wedding planner. Fourth thing is to consider a niche, to consider a specialty. And for some reason, many of us go in the opposite direction. We feel that we need to offer a lot of different things. And perhaps this has something to do with the celebrity wedding planners, the mainstream wedding planners that we're seeing who do offer everything. But at that stage, people like that have had, they, they have name recognition. So they don't need to do anything special because people already know who they are. But until you become so well-known that your name is synony synonymous with weddings in your area, you need a specialty 
to, especially to stand out if there are several other professional wedding planners in your area. And if you are based in a metropolitan area, I'm guessing that there are several other wedding planners. So you have to do something to stand out. And a niche is one way to do that. It's a lucrative angle for your business, for any, for most businesses. So if you are drawn to a certain area of planning weddings or a certain type of wedding, maybe the high-end luxury weddings, then your brand needs to exude that. Your website, your style, the weddings and the clients that you've worked with in the past need to reflect that. If your style is more whimsical, fun, rock and roll, I know there's a rock and roll bride website and print magazine now actually, and that appeals to a very segmented type of couple getting married. And if that's what you're drawn to, then focus on that. Just make sure there is enough demand in your area or wherever you're, where it is you plan to market your services. But a specialty will help you stand out and will also bring in more money because people who want that type of wedding planner will come to you, which equates to more business. And the fifth thing that I think a lot of us wedding planners miss out on, one of the, the fifth top thing to do to start being a wedding planner is to develop a presence locally and online. But local is good. Online opens up what we do to a, a realm of possibilities, a lot of different people. But if you can make your mark locally as the wedding person to go to, you're beginning to develop your brand, your, your personality, your, who you are into this local, local person that people know the de- that know that you are the real deal when it comes to weddings. So then you can begin to spread your wings a little bit if you are trying to move away from being a specialist, which I don't think there's anything wrong with being a specialist, as you can tell. But it's easy to do that once you become well-known in, in your neck of the woods. So, yes, there's lots of stuff, lots of blogs and websites online. But I'm not saying forget that. That's important because a lot of us, almost all of us go online to get started on our search. And that's no different for wedding planners. But local is the thing. People want to know about weddings in their area. What and It doesn't have to be as large as statewide. It could be just your city. If you really focus and zone in on all the cool places to get married in your town and all the cool what wedding vendors and services that are available in your town, people will begin to pay attention to that because when they go online, they're seeing a much broader spectrum and selection of things. And and if you're getting married locally, you want to know what the local deal is. So those are my top five things. If you're thinking about becoming five things to do to start being a wedding planner, let me just recap that real quickly. Turn my page back. Sorry. Get hands-on wedding experience. Talk to planners and existing professional wedding planners in the field. Make that professional wedding planners and vendors in the field. Make sure there's a demand for what you want, for what it is that you want to offer. Consider a niche a specialty. That's a good thing. And then develop a presence locally. Be the local super wedding planning superstar. Okay, Denisha, I hope that helps. Okay, next question comes from Dawn. Dawn asks, what do you think is the best advertising for a wedding planner? Website, print, bridal expo venues? Dawn, good question. The I, I piggybacked, I, well, I answered this question. I meant Part of my answer I, I mentioned in part one, 
yes, uh, during our last part one of the Q&A, and I mentioned that if you are a wedding planner that you need to have a website, but a website is more of a marketing tool. Advertising is something you pay for. Marketing is what you do, your efforts to get the eyes your way. And advertising is one way to do that. I have found as a wedding planner, especially now, since we are, we, we've, this stage in, in, in time where we have social media and, and the affordability of websites, is to use those tools, use those tools to sort of get the eyes your way. Print is one way to get is to pay for advertising, but then you're you're limited because so many of us are going online. I think it, a lot of the searches begin online, so a website is paramount. But your website has to be appealing. Your website has to capture the attention of the person looking at your website, which is why you want to be clear with regard to what it is that you do. Many wedding planner websites that I look at are beautiful. But it takes me a while to figure out where this wedding planner is located and what, if any, special specialty this wedding planner has. And the thing with the specialty, I'm going to jump back to that, is that you are filtering who it is you're looking for. What type of, what type of client is it that you are ideally suited for? And if you have a specialty, things like creating a website, a print ad, if you decide to do that, even setting up at a bridal expo becomes easier and more affordable because you're not wasting money on targeting clients that aren't well suited for the type of service you offer. So if you offer, if you are a high-end wedding planner, if your fees start in the region of $10,000 US dollars and up, your fees, then your print ad isn't going to make much sense if you put that print ad in a magazine or print publication targeted for budget weddings or people trying to save tons of money on their wedding. There's disconnect. So this is why the, the, the wedding, the, um, the specialty thing always comes up for me because it helps you zone in. Initially, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm losing all of these clients. I'm losing all these potential clients. But that's exactly what you want. You just want to focus on a segment, it's going to be a whole lot easier and a lot less expensive for you. So personally, Dawn, to answer your question, because you mentioned website, print, bridal expo venues, I've never exhibited at a bridal expo. If I go to a local bridal expo, it's for me to find, to make contacts with other wedding vendors. I want to see what it is that they're doing and see who I like and how they present themselves. That's usually a good inkling of what's really going on. Are they coming out from behind the booth to talk to their clients? Are they kind of sitting back and waiting for clients, um, bridal show attendees to walk in? Do they have a presence in, in the ads that the bridal expo is promoting? So, but that that's my focus for bridal expo. It, there's usually a substantial cost involved for bridal expo. And from my experience, from what I've seen, client the people attending are coming to, it's almost like a, sort of like a yard sale. I don't mean that in a bad way because yard sales aren't bad anyway. But they're browsing to see what they can get. It's not really a one-on-one detailed conversation, which, is, which may not be what you're, what you're looking for. It's a, it's a numbers thing. It's a quantity rather than quality. And this is why when you specialize, you don't need a thing like a bridal expo because you got, it's sort of like a mass market. You're going to get some leads, but are you going to find the exact person the ideal client that you're looking for. And if you do decide to go with the Bridal Expo, you have to decide, well, what is it that I'm hoping to achieve? 
my goal at this bridal expo is to get five people to sign up to do a free consultation with me. That's achievable and it's measurable. You can see at the end of the expo if you've achieved that. But saying I'm going to the bridal expo and to see how many people um, I can get to come into my booth. Okay, well, you can get people to come into your booth, but how does that translate into more business for you? So, you know, it may work for you. Maybe if you go into a bridal expo, Dawn, that is a, is a specialty bridal expo. See how that niche thing plays in, comes into play again? Like Pamela Noxon on the West Coast and has, has a bridal show that she um, hosts in San Diego. But it's a very, it's, it's, each event has a theme going on and it's targeted at higher end bride, oh, couples. I keep saying bride, sorry. The traditional roles are still ingrained in my head. But if you're offering a service that's targeting clients who are trying to save as much money as possible and spend as little as they can on their wedding, her bridal show expo may not be the place for you to exhibit. But if you're the luxury high-end wedding planner that I mentioned earlier, that may be the better spot for you if that's your market. So you, it really depends. Print, as I mentioned, is, is usually fairly expensive and you're not getting as many eyes your way. You have to hope that the, the print publication is landing in the hands of the people who are your potential clients. Locally, that may work, but there's only ever a small percentage of people who are getting married at a given time. So unless it's a bridal print publication, it's going to be difficult to get the eyes your way. And even then, you have to have an ad that's going to stand out that's visible, not one that's buried in the back of the print publication. So with things like social media, where you can get followers and blogs, meaning that you're able to create, and, and blogging is a form of social media, where you're creating content, especially with a local angle, where people are getting to know a bit about you. They're getting to, ready to interact. It's like this big cocktail party where you get a chance to shine. Those are the things. It, it's, it's organic, and it may take more time, but I think the, long, the, the long-term effects, if you are in this for the long haul, are, are, are stronger. If you have the funds to spare and you think that, you know, you want to do the print thing, the Bridal Expo setup, have at it. But just make sure that you are setting up a goal that's attainable and achievable, something that you can measure. Maybe that's the better term, a measurable success for those things. But I have never gone that route because it just has that mass market appeal, print Bridal Expo, which is not really the way that I think when it comes to working as a wedding planner. Um just make sure whatever it is you do, Dawn, is providing value again and something that you can measure. All right? So I hope that helps. Next question comes in from Molly. Molly says, in my city, there are an abundance of wedding planners. That should be good news because it also means an abundance of brides as well. But my dilemma is an age question. How old is too old to start a new career as a wedding planner? Given that most brides are in their 20s and 30s, will they automatically, automatically, automatically think that I am not going to give them a wedding based on current trends because of my age? I am almost a verified senior. Would I be more successful if I simply assist a wedding planner who is younger and already in business? Ageism is a sensitive subject for all of us to discuss, but all of my marketable skills are most easily lent to the field of wedding planning, and I'm not new to weddings in general at all. I have extreme designer skills that are begging to be used. Okay, Molly, good question. We don't always have to look like our clients. It's what we provide, the information that we provide. I'm going to drop some of the celebrity wedding planning names out there. 
Preston Bailey, Marcy Bloom, Mindy Weiss, Diane Valentine, I know, met her. These are wedding planners, but as far Colin Cowie, Martha Stewart, these are folks who are front and center for the most part in the wedding industry. I think I can say I don't think they're spring chickens. <laughs> I really don't. Their brand is what they've produced and what they have shown and what they've demonstrated. And yes, I you, I agree. Age, ageism is a sensitive subject. However, you have to decide what subjects are going to be your issue and what subjects are going to be the issue of your potential clients. So if you've been out there and you have experienced this problem firsthand, then you know of what you speak. But I know many times, me included, I, we, I, us, we will make a decision, we'll come up with a problem in our mind as an obstacle, a situation that's going to be a problem for us, and this is just based on what we've got in our heads. We haven't actually given it a go. And a lot of times thinking about something is a lot worse than actually doing and being involved. If you are demonstrating to me that you have the, your finger on the pulse of what's going on with weddings, I don't care how old you are. I just want to see what service it is that you provide. And since you bring it up, you say, what was the term? You said you're almost a verified senior. That may be the plus. If I'm getting married and let's say I am a younger bride, I'm going to try that young. I'm a younger bride. I'm not sure where to go. I'm not sure what to do. I may want someone who is like me and thinks like me, but then I may also decide that I may also feel, may feel better having someone who is older that has the wisdom to guide me in the right direction. It may be the, 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 um, the parent factor that I'm looking for. We cannot assume that we know what's going on in our client's head until we actually do the hard and fast research. I think it has more. Now, I may look at you, and we do some people up at first glance. I may initially think, wow, she's older than I thought. But maybe you've already proven yourself. I've seen your portfolio. I've read the testimonials from the clients that you've worked with. I've seen the type of work you do. That should speak louder than who you are as an individual. And Molly, if the people that you would like to work with don't get that, that is their issue and not yours. Now, if you know that you need to brush up and you're not forward thinking, that's a different thing. But it, this came up a few years ago when we had this discussion about being a, a, a black wedding planner and not being able to get clients who are other than black clients. It's a, it's a, real, it's a real thought. It's a real thing. But you have to decide whose issue is that. And if I know the client that I'm going after and I wanted a more diverse base of clients, then I have to make sure that it, am I putting out something that doesn't narrow me down. Now, that sort of contradicts what I was just talking about, having a niche. But you first, you, the wedding planner, has to decide what, what kind of weddings do I want to do? What am I drawn to? And if, Molly, if you are drawn to working with younger brides, then you create a business, you create a portfolio that is that, that heads in that direction. If you are more comfortable working with older brides, guess what? There are older brides and, and, and couples that are getting married. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, people aren't marrying f f for life now. 
a lot of times you'll you'll encounter clients who this is the second or third or maybe more marriage. That type of client may feel much better working with someone who's older. That may that person may be you. And guess what? We've just created a niche right there. You're going to focus on encore weddings if that's what you choose to do. I don't want to pigeonhole you, but and what I'm trying to make you understand, Molly, is that you have to decide what's going to be an issue for you. And I notice you said you say. But all of my marketable skills are most easily lent to the field of wedding planning. Are you saying you want to be a wedding planner or are you saying what you're doing makes sense to be a wedding planner? So make sure there's a there's enough passion for this field, too. And then you need to make sure that there are people in your area that want what it is that you're offering. But what is it that you're offering? If you're doing the general thing, then you may feel that you're sort of out of sorts and you're not fitting in. But if you create a specialty and make sure there's a need for that specialty... You're going to get all that business. You also mentioned that you have extreme designer skills that are begging to be used with an emphasis on begging. If you have extreme designer skills, I hate to say it, or maybe I shouldn't hate to say it, who cares what, who, how old you are? As long as you can produce the, 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 the look of the wedding that your clients want, who cares? Because it's not even about you. Being a one, you know, doing full service planning has a lot to do with chemistry and how we connect with our clients. There needs to be a connection there. The thing about design, it has little to do with you and has a, a lot more to do with what you're producing. It's more like a product than a service almost. So I think, Molly, guessing from what, I, what you're talking, what you said in your questions and not having a chance to speak with you one-on-one, -on -one, some of the issues that you're feeling may have more to do with you than what's really happening out there. But you have to go out there and see. We have to do our due diligence to make sure that some of these hang-ups that we have really do exist. Sometimes we're getting in our own way of what, need, of what we need to do, of our potential. You said it to me that you have extreme designer skills. Focus on that. If that's where your passion is, and don't worry. But age won't even come into play if you can produce a wedding that looks fantastic. Just find the right target client, the right target, yeah, the target client, and focus on that group and forget about everybody else. If wedding planning is what you want to do and less of the design thing, then focus on the areas of wedding planning that make sense to you, the parts that you enjoy, and think about who's your ideal client. Think about one person. If you've done weddings in the past, name, you know, think of who your top clients were and why, why did you guys get on like a house on fire? What was so great about that relationship? Because more of those people will make you happier and hopefully make you more money. So Molly, I hope that helps with regards to your question. Okay, next question comes in from Valerie. Valerie asks, I'm being considered to coordinate a wedding for a same-sex couple. I have no idea how to coordinate this type of wedding. I don't know what's appropriate and what protocol is. Please advise. Okay, Valerie, if you're getting, if you're writing in that question, you said you're being considered. Based on the timing, I don't know if, if that opportunity has long since left the building, but if you're a business owner, if you're a wedding planner, and you're interested in working with a couple for a type of wedding that you haven't worked on, then we research. So, you know, Amazon, Google, associations, talk to other wedding planners maybe in, a, in other parts of the country, other parts of the world that focus on that. Same-sex wedding, same weddings, there's an abundance of information out there. And the best part is, you know, in order for us to learn something, if you just focus on one or two books, and read those through from cover to cover to get an insight. You'll be way ahead of the game. 
And anything that comes up like that, Valerie, any type of wedding that comes up that you're not familiar with, that's what you have to do. You don't know what's appropriate. We've got Google. We've got associations. Um, we've got books. We've got Amazon. Come on. So you've got to, you've got to decide, well, okay, either I'm interested or I'm not. And if I am interested, I need to go do a, I've got to, you know, brainstorm maybe the next 48 hours and learn everything I can about same-sex weddings. You're going to be in a good place. If someone, we got a question yesterday about Persian weddings. If someone approached, approached me about Persian weddings, I would be, I'm not quite sure what's going on. But I bet you in within the 48 hours, if I only zoned in on Persian weddings, I would have a lot more information. And your clients, potential clients can usually suss out if you're, going to be the right person for their wedding and sometimes they're just drawn to you and there's something about you that they want to work with you that's you know that's that's flattering you just make sure that you let them know this is not you and you can decide you can say if and they're probably going to ask you have you planned a same-sex wedding in this case the answer is no but I have really done my research since speaking to you that's what you want to be able to say we don't want to sit back as wedding planners we have to Go forward, move forward, and do everything we can to get the answers that we need. And thankfully, it's super easy. And for the most part, doesn't take much more than our time. And Valerie, after you've done a wedding like that, if you are selected, then maybe that's something that... The thing is, once you do one type of wedding, the experience you learn from doing that specialty, that, that, that kind of wedding, you can do another one again, and it's easy. It gets easier and easier and easier. But anytime someone asks you about a wedding that you haven't done, you just need to take the next 24 to 48 hours to go in there and study that from top to bottom. Whatever information you can gather, just focus on that. Nothing else, just the same-sex weddings in this, in, in, in this instance, and you'll know where to begin. You have to have a desire there too, though. If it's something that you don't feel like you want to do, then pass. Each client is not for you. But if it's something you want to do, Valerie, I think you know the answer. You just need to do your research, okay? But um, having said that, let me just add that, a quick note. You know, a same-sex wedding does have, the, you know, that you have difficulties with, you know, well, when you get used to saying bride and groom, I do it all the time. Is it partner one? Is it partner two? How are we doing this? Um, do, is it a civil wedding? Is it a Christian wedding? After It's the same sort of setup as working with a heterosexual couple for the most part. But there are some nuances that you have to, you know, if you're, if you're uncomfortable, your clients are going to pick up on that. As long as you're willing, then you'll be engrossed in trying to find the information you, ne you need. If it's something you're not comfortable with, whether it's this or whether it's a, it's a, a Persian wedding or it's a wedding where they're, you know, it's completely civil, there's no reference. If it's a ceremony, for example, and... It's a civil ceremony and they don't want any any mention of Christ or God or anything like that. And you're not comfortable with that and you're an officiant, for example, then you pass. But you have to decide, you know, if you're comfortable with working. If you have, the, if the desire is there, then, you know, have at it. With same-sex couples, though, as we've discussed in the past, you don't want to pass. If that's something that you're not willing to do, then you might want to consider, well, do I really want to be in the wedding industry? And this has come up before, but that's not what I'm getting into right now. Valerie, you said that you, you don't know where to begin. You just got to do your research. You've got to move forward to see what you can find out. Okay. Let's, um, I had a question that came in through the listener talk back line. Hi, Miss Debbie. This is Asi. I am calling from Brockton, Massachusetts. I just have a quick question about uh, how to get training to become a professional wedding planner. 
Okay, Ashley. So you're quite, Ashley's asking about training to become a wedding planner. I know we have an episode for this on weddingsforliving.com. Uh, one of the yeah one of, yeah we did an episode. So as a wedding planner, we don't currently have a, an, an official body or organization that says um, a licensing requirement that says this is what you must do to use a title wedding planner. Anyone can decide. I'm a wedding planner. I've put up a website. I've got business cards. I am in business. So. There is no official training. Having said that, there is an abundance of wedding planner certification courses online and some are offline, some are a combination of both. So wedding planner certification, because there is no governing body, it's like the wild, 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 wild west. So actually, you have to decide, you know, can I figure this out on my own? I'm of the belief that you can figure out most of what happens at a wedding on your own because there are two schools of thought here, right? What happens at a wedding? The actual hands-on involvement of what do I? What happens at a wedding? What's the protocol? That's part one. Then, then there's a way. Then you have to translate that training into a business. That's a, a whole another beast. That's a whole separate thing. But training to become a wedding planner, you can figure out on your own. I'm of the belief you can. Most of us usually come into this industry because we have a background or we've had an, some involvement in planning special events. And then we decide we like the weddings and that's the area we choose to focus in. Or sometimes we, weddings is just a part of this, is just one type of special event that we focus on. But the training you can do on your own. Now, if you need to get it done quickly, quick, fast, and in a hurry, then you might want to sign up for a certification course. But just knowing that it's not a requirement, that's to help you. And for many people, having certification is an indication that they're serious about what it is that they're doing. My only problem with that school of thought is because there's no regulation, there's no governing body. Again, I've said it again because it's, it's a sticking point for me. Certification, kind of, what does it mean? If there's nobody to decide what being certified means, then what does it mean to have certification? Most people are pretty savvy and can go online and see if you say you were certified by... XYZ Wedding Certification Company, they can go in for themselves and see what the curriculum involves, what's the syllabus, how extensive is it, is it hands-on or is it all online? So you have to decide how quickly you want to learn. And if you are, if you're not focused, if you're not, what's the word, I'm, if, you, if you're not disciplined enough, that's what it is, to get everything done in a certain amount of time, then wedding certification may be the way to go. If you can find a training class that doesn't even use the word certification, that might work. You may see, sometimes you'll see the wedding planner boot camp where you condense all of the information into two or three days or sometimes one day. That's a good way to get started, but it may not be enough. You, you, you know, as with anything, you might, anything that you're learning, you might want to do some continuing education as you go on. So, Ashley, training is totally up to you. There, there's no shortage of what you can do online. I think, though, no, the, no training as a wedding planner can ever supersede the hands-on. If you can get out there and get involved and do weddings and be involved in weddings uh, events firsthand, nothing can beat that. You'll see what it's all about. You'll see how to interact with other people, clients, vendors, venue staff, things like that. What to do when things go wrong, because things will go wrong, and how you handle that. So training is totally up to you. And how you want to deal with that, but just remember, if you, and if you can ever get hands-on experience, that's always gonna gonna trump the online experience, as far as I'm concerned. 
So I, I don't know if that helps. You can look at some of the associations. I know the episode that we did about wedding plan association has, and association is more of um sort of we'll get a group of people together and and for the better good. So that's a little different than wedding planner certification. But if you go to weddingsforaliving.com slash 391, that's all about uh, that episode is based on the response to the question, should I join a wedding planner association? But if you do, if you also, if you're thinking about wedding planner certification, weddingsforaliving.com slash 386. Weddingsforaliving.com slash 386 is about wedding planner certification. And I know that's not the question you asked. You asked about training, but the lines get blurry. Training certification, that's usually what comes up. But the, the two episodes that I just mentioned are probably your best best bet. Contact some of the associations to see what training that they offer. I know Bridal Association of Bridal Consultants is one that comes up a lot. And they have a lot of ongoing classes, too, for their members. Okay. Next question comes in from... From Kay. Kay says, I have been planning events for about two years as a licensed professional with no previous training. See, don't need to get be trained a lot of times. I sometimes become overwhelmed. With most weddings, I am not only creating centerpieces and other wedding decor, but fully planning the event as well. I, I truly need someone that is skilled in planning and or event design. Unfortunately, I cannot afford additional staff at this time. My service rates are really low to attract more customers. I've been thinking about bringing in a volunteer or intern to help me. What are your thoughts on this? All right, Kay, your question is a good one and one that I hear quite a bit. If you have been planning weddings for about two years, you said as a licensed professional but with no previous training, I'm, well, I'm not sure what licensing you're referring to with regard to our industry, but you I, 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 a few things. I noticed you say that you you create centerpieces and you also plan. If you are a wedding planner and you're doing the design aspect, you shouldn't be bundling all that together. Charge separately for that. Either you plan, you charge as a designer, you charge as a planner. Someone can hire you for either or 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 both. But don't roll it all up because that's that's the first problem. You're providing two different kinds of services. When you put it all together, then you're stretched too thin. The other part is you said. My service rates are really low to attract more customers. Okay, if you've been, you said you've been planning, maybe not in business. I've been, I'm trying to read the question again. I've been planning events for about two years. If you've been planning events for about two years, I don't know if that means as a business, your service rates are really low to attract more customers, but you need help. You need to raise your prices. It's, if you need help, you need to raise your prices. We A lot of us fall into this trap of thinking if we charge a really low price, we're going to get more clients. You're going to get more clients who don't want to spend money. But if you're going after a certain type of client for your wedding planning business, you may need to raise your prices. The, the low prices may well be a turnoff. Talked about this in part one. So raise your prices. You don't price your services and then try to make everything fit. You see what your expenses are and then you price according to your expenses and then add in, a pro, add in your profit. If you're setting up your business by and, and pricing first, then that tells me you're not really setting up as a business owner. You're kind of picking a number or you're trying to match or undercut the prices of other planners in your area. There's, you, you cannot succeed. You cannot make money. So you're talking about bringing in a volunteer or an intern. By the way, bringing in an intern is not a way for you to get free or cheap labor. Sorry. Interns are there to learn from you. You need to be willing to 
divulge some of your company your store secrets and behind the scenes tactics to interns. That's what they're there for. It's not free or cheap labor. That's a mistake. You are either there to provide them with, if, especially if it's for credit, something that, that, that they can take with them. No, it doesn't sound great to you, but that's what an internship is about. Bringing in a volunteer. You may well be able to get some volunteers, Kay, but if you're setting up a business, you need to look at what your expenses are, what your money goals are, what it is that you want to achieve with this business, and then price accordingly. If those prices are way too high for your neck of the woods, then you got to rethink the wedding planning thing. But if it's a situation where you don't want to raise your prices because you don't think you can get customers based on the price, then that's your issue. Does your company match up to the prices that you really should be charging? Would you hire you? Is there? I mean, if I'm approaching a wedding planner who's charging upwards of $5,000, I expect this person to have a website. I expect this person to come across as polished and to, to demonstrate value to me. If that doesn't exist, then there's a disconnect and you've got that wedding planner needs to reevaluate what he or she is doing. But if you need all of the things that you've mentioned to me, Kay, you need to raise your prices. And if you've been doing this for a while, it's time. It's time. Charging a low price, undercutting other wedding planners in your area, trying to be the low part, it's, it's not a surefire way to get business. What you do is you set your prices up for what they should be or what you aspire them to be, if it's the $5,000 mark, and you let family and friends and a few vendors know you're new and you're going to take on some clients that will pay less. That's it. You don't. Put, if, you, if you start off low as a budget wedding planner, that's where you'll remain for the most part. I think it's a good thing to shoot for if you're looking at pricing in your area. Shoot to be in the top one-third in your neck of the woods if you don't know where to start. That's not a good way to do business, though. You have to really see what your needs are. But don't shoot for the bottom part. Shoot for the top. Shoot for the top third, okay? Um, was it – what's your name? I'm sorry. Kay, I hope that helps. Just raise your prices. That's what you have to do. And if your prices don't match your company look and brand, then you need to look at your branding again, Okay? All right, next question from Geraldine. I have a bride and groom who are insisting against my input to mail out the save the, save the dates 11 months before their wedding. It is not a destination wedding. There are a few guests who live across the U.S., Tri-State, Pennsylvania to Atlanta and Colorado. The wedding is during, during Columbus Day weekend 2017. Your thoughts? Okay, Geraldine. As wedding planners, professional wedding planners, when our clients hire us, we are there as advisors. But... but I'm going to use that term I keep hearing people use over and over. But at the end of the day, they get to decide what they want to do. You can only advise. And if they don't want to do it, what, if, they, if you've made a suggestion they don't want to make that, they don't want to take your advice, what can you do? It is what it is. This decision right here, save the date, I don't think it's going to have a great impact on your role. It's a save the date. You know, you're saying it's too soon. But here's the thing. They're having their wedding on a holiday weekend, you say. And Columbus Day here in the U.S. is in October. This recording is happening in May of the previous year. It is a little soon. And wait a minute. You said 11 months before the wedding. Oh, that's maybe not too, uh, too outrageous. It is a little early. But the thing with a with holiday weekend, a lot of times people make plans early. A holiday weekend means that prices are at the premium usually. So sending out a save the date 11 months before a holiday weekend wedding, isn't outrageous as far as I'm concerned. 
So that's my feeling on that situation. But getting back to the point of you providing input and them not heeding your advice, it is what it is. I would say this is not detrimental to how the wedding will turn out. Let it go. That would be my response, Geraldine. Okay, I hope that helps. Next, Celestine. Celestine. I don't know if I'm saying that correct. Celestine. How do you handle a controlling mother when she's paying for the wedding, but her daughter is the bride? I'm trying to give the daughter the wedding she wants, but mom keeps taking control. Okay, good question. We, I did this as a, as we did this in one of the episodes here. When you first sign up with a client, when a client, when you're interviewing a client, pre-qualifying them, you have to ask some questions. And this is one of the questions that you have to ask. Who is, who is or who are the decision makers for this event? Your clients, the person paying your fee is who you should be answering to, but that's not always the situation. For controlling mother like that, you have to talk to your client, whoever's paying your fee, Celestine, and I'm assuming you said the daughter's paying. So you have to ask her, how do you want me to handle this? I see mom is really involved in this and it's making my role very difficult. So do you want me to be able to respond to her? Do we talk to one another? And you, you know, you may have to sit the three of them down and say, you know, your bride and her mother and say, I know you want the wedding that you want for your daughter, but she's paying my fee. And that's who I typically answer to. So I need the two of you to let me know how you want this communication handled. And you provide them with some options. You say, okay, so bride, when you say something, when you make a suggestion or ask me to do, do you want me to come to you first? Do you want me to copy mom? Mom, um, then say to the bride, also, when mom contacts me directly, do you want me just to follow up with you? Do you want me to run things by you? Or do you only want me to take instruction from you? Ask the three of the three of you need to be in that meeting together and get it figured out. You don't want to be the person in the middle going back and forth, looking like, you know, like you're watching a tennis match. Who's calling the shots here? And if mom is making, is putting, is giving her input, is that gospel or does the bride need to, you, do you need to run it by her first? But only one person can be the boss. So they've got to figure it out amongst them and then come to you. If it becomes too difficult, don't be scared to step away from a wedding. Don't. This is why you have to pre-qualify your potential clients before you sign on. My guess is there was probably some inclination beforehand that this was going on. And if you couldn't tell, you must ask the question. Who else is making some of the big decisions here? Is it just the two of you, meaning the couple? Are there any parents involved? Is anyone else contributing? And maybe the, the client is the one that's paying your fee, but maybe mom and dad or whomever are giving her money, contributing to the wedding. Because a lot of times when parents contribute, as far as they're concerned, that gives them some input. There, there's some control factor involved. You have to weed that. You have to get that information out up front. And tell them you you can't figure it out between the two of them. So they have to come to an agreement as to how this how you want this handled. If this continues, you're not sure if you can really move forward with this wedding. Put it to them like that. You don't want to lose your mind or worse, your reputation. Well, maybe the mind is worse than the reputation dealing with stuff like this. But you must ask these questions up front. Since it's all, it's, we're past that stage, Celestine, ask them to get, get them together. You can't do this one. And maybe you talk to your bride first and say, I'm having some issues. I don't know who to really take instruction from. So what I'd like to do is to set up a meeting with you and your mom, you and your mom, and we can figure this out so I know how to move forward. 
And if there is no resolution, tell them you don't know if you can continue. You'll be happy to help them find another wedding planner. But don't be scared to walk away from a wedding. This is what you do. You're in control as the, as the wedding business owner. Not in control of the wedding, but in, in control of how things pan out for your business. Okay? All right. I hope that helps, Celestine. Okay. Carol Ellis has the next question. And I, let's see. Carol says, it's been a while since I've been able to listen to any broadcast. My question is, do you have to be, a cert- do you have to be certified to be a wedding planner? I had been taking classes via my old library for free. That included a certificate at the end. However, I became ill. And right now I cannot afford a course, but would like to continue my studies independently and with the help of your broadcast. I love your broadcast. Carol, wonderful. Thank you for writing. And I wish you all the best with your recovery. You said your health is not great. Our health is is important. You can't function without good health, right? Having said that, no, you do not need to be certified to be a wedding planner, and you are on the right path to be doing your independent studies. Just realize that all the studying can't happen independently. You got to get out there. Make a part, make it a part of your mission to talk to a couple of vendors each month, maybe, you know, one a week or maybe two a month. Make appointments with these professional vendors, but you don't want to come at it as I'm learning and I'm trying to get insight. What you want to say is I'm getting my wedding business. I'm in the process of setting up my wedding business locally and I'm trying to create a short list of some really great professional wedding vendors. I saw your ad or I saw your website or saw your bridal expo or someone recommended me to you. What I'd like to do is just to come in and learn a whole as much as I can in the space of 30 minutes about your business so that I can share this with my potential clients. Say that. And what you're doing is you're beginning to develop a list of professional wedding vendors, but you're also getting a chance to get out there and hear what it is that's going on locally. And that tied in with your independent learning is going to be win-win for you, Carol. So set a goal for yourself to get out there. And I'm using the vendors as a way to get you up from the independent studies. That's a way for you to A, learn more about wedding vendors, create that shortlist, and B, to become immersed locally in the wedding planning scene. If you go there with the intention of letting them know that you are trying to learn more about them so that you can send them business, that's the part you got to say, so that I can send you business, not just to learn, but to send them business. Any self-respecting wedding vendor in your area that wants to, be, wants to continue to, to remain in business will accept that. But you have to paint the picture as something in it for them, and you have to be upbeat and positive about it, not suggesting that you wouldn't be, okay? So I hope that helps. Keep Keep learning, keep listening in, but make sure we take some, and this, you know, we all need to get up and get out of there. It can be addictive to sit down and just be online. We have to get up out of our butts. We actually provide an offline service, so we have to be offline. We have to be out there, okay? All right, Carol, again, hugs and kisses for you. Get better soon. All right. Next question comes from CG. I hope I'm saying that correctly. S, like Sierra, I, J, I. Question is, what's the best way to price your services? Pricing is is more of an art than a science, but there are different ways that you can price as a wedding planner. You can price by the hour. You can price by percentage. You can price by the flat event. And you can also, what did I say? Let me back up a second. Hold on. You can price by the event, meaning a flat fee. You can price by the hour. You can price by a percentage of the budget for the 
for the wedding that you're working on. So whatever the budget is, you get a percentage of that. Lots of different ways to do it. And it really depends on your scenario. I did a complete episode, you'll be happy to know, CG, of about pricing. It's called How Do I Price My Wedding Planner Services? And the link to go to is weddingsforaliving.com slash 384. Weddingsforaliving.com slash 384. I list all of the options, the different ways that you can price, and then a quick synopsis of what which scenario works better for each type of pricing. Okay, and then there's also I think I also included a a, a form a, a, an image of when, for example, when percentage pricing works, what it's great for, and what it's not great for. So check that out. Weddingsforaliving.com/slash-three-eight-four will give you um, I think the answer you need. But just re- just know that with regard to pricing, you have to know what your expenses are. We're in business, which means our income needs to exceed our expenses. If it's the other way around where your expenses are constantly exceeding your income, then you're running a hobby. Initially, it's going to be difficult to get the income to exceed the expenses, but the goal should always be to move beyond that. But you have to know what it is that your money goals are. Are you trying to run this business full-time? Are you trying to just cover your mortgage payment each month? Are you trying to afford, are you trying to take care of your entire family? You have to sit down and think that out, which is why looking at other wedding planner prices doesn't help you in that that area. It doesn't matter what the girl up the street is charging because her needs are completely different from yours. So you have to start with what money, how much money do you need? And you've got to be able to pay yourself, not just cover expenses. You need a profit. And then you can decide, well, okay, how much time do I have? This, you know, if I need to make 50000 this year after expenses, well, how many weddings is that? Can I do a wedding each weekend? That's going to be tough. There are 52 weekends out of the year. That's going to be exhausting. And then remember, it's not everyone's getting married all the time and not all clients are hiring, wed- not all couples are hiring wedding planners. So you have to look at that to set your prices. So again, the best way to price your services varies is, is a different situation than how much should I charge. But check out 384. I think that's the best place for you to get started, right? Is that what I said, 384? Sometimes I forget what I'm saying for my own self. Yeah, 384. Another good episode that talks about wedding planning pricing, pricing is 369. So every time I say the episode number, if you just use that as, a, you know, after the weddings.com slash and then the episode number, you'll get it. So weddingsforaliving.com slash 369 talks about pricing. And then it's in, uh, on episode 3712, weddingsforaliving.com slash 371. Talks about pricing. And again, on 372, weddingsforliving.com slash 372. The episodes that I just mentioned, the 372, the 371, 369, pricing is a portion of those episodes. But pricing all on its own is on 384. Okay? Weddingsforliving.com slash 384. All right. Just want to make sure you got those links. And this is from Keandria. Keandria says, I was just wondering... If you could discuss different ways to make money as a wedding planner without having to plan weddings particularly. Okay, so Keandria, hope I'm saying your name correctly. If you're pricing that, so I don't know if that really makes you a wedding planner. I guess, I don't know if you're asking because you want to do something in addition to wedding planning or instead of. So different ways to make money as a wedding planner without having to plan weddings would be 
invitations, accessories, selling those as products. Then there's design because design is different from planning, as I mentioned earlier. You shouldn't be charging, shouldn't be bundling all that. That's separate. So design is another way. And then there's typically what we do as wedding planners is that we charge our clients, the, the couple getting married, a fee, whether it's percentage, hourly, flat fee. Then you can also turn around and do what's known, set up um, like a referral business where you are providing planning services. I'm doing that with air quotes, planning services at no charge to your clients, but you are representing a handful of vendors and charging those vendors a fee to represent them. This business model you'll see in places like the wedding library. That's the place I always think of and based in New York. And the idea is you go in to this wedding library and there's a whole range of supplier portfolios and videos. And you talk to someone there, that would be you, and you're actually helping them to pick some things out, but you're representing each one of those vendors. And again, the vendors are paying you either a monthly fee, an annual fee, or a percentage or something like that. That's a little different. So you can do that as a way. So you're not really out there planning weddings. You're more of a consultant role, but you're just re representing a handful of vendors. It may be 10 vendors in each group that you're representing. And that almost always requires you, Keandria, to have a, a, a studio or a location where people can come into as opposed to being home-based. But you could be home-based if you want people to come into your home. But, you know, or, or maybe you set up, um, this is also works out well if there's an existing wedding business. Let's say there's a venue or a photographer studio. I always use a photographer studio as an example. But a lot of times they have extra space and maybe you can rent a portion of that and that's your resource center, your wedding resource center. And people can come there and you can help them pick out, you know, help them select. So there are two parts to that. The, the part is where you've got to find the vendors and represent them and figure out how you're going to do that equally for the vendors in each category. And then you've got to market the business to clients, the potential uh, couples getting married in your area that they can come there and plan their weddings for free. And maybe that's the way you market it. Come and plan your weddings for free. I know Debbie, who is the owner of Planners Lounge, I think she runs a business like that. It's called something to do with events. You may be familiar with that. That same kind of concept. But it looks great on the surface, but there's a lot more, <laughs> a lot more legwork involved there, Keandria. But... You know, different ways. And we're changing the way we do things. I, If you're interested in being a wedding officiant, where you are able to perform a, cell, a wedding ceremony for couples, then you're not really planning a wedding. You're really working on the ceremony side of things. You could do a couple of those on a weekend, actually. And that might actually, that's pretty lucrative. Don't underestimate that. It's a lot less hand-holding, but it has a unique factor. And then maybe that expands to what, you hear this popular term pop-up weddings where you are setting up a venue. You rent the you rent the venue out for the entire day and then people are coming to that venue at different time slots. Maybe there's a wedding at 12 o'clock, there's a wedding at 3 o'clock, there's a wedding at 5 o'clock and you're styling, the, you're styling the location, performing the wedding ceremony, getting someone to take pictures and that's another angle. You're not really planning. So a lot of different, that's another way to the pop-up wedding. It seems to be a pretty trendy thing. I, I, I'm hoping that would stick around. And that's another way to do uh, weddings. And then, you know, even as a wedding officiant, maybe you become what's known as a mobile wedding officiant, which is really what a wedding celebrant, uh, a, a wedding officiant is. You're going, your clients pick the location and you go to them. So that's another way 
of making money as a wedding planner. So I hope some of those options kind of give you the answers that you're looking for. I hope that helps. And that concludes part two of the live broadcast. I hope the answers to these questions help you too. But you know what? There are still some questions I didn't get to. So it's almost as though I have to do a part three or label it something else. But I think we're going to do a part three. So hang tight. The next episode, I'm pretty certain, is going to be a continuation of these answers to your life questions. Again, this is episode 395, weddingsforliving.com slash 395. Please head over to that page to post your comments, to find links to any of the resources that you heard today. Remember, weddingsforliving.com has a lot of archived episodes Uh, The talk show has been um, available for several years, so there's a lot to get through. And if you have any questions, please look for the contact page on the website. I'd love to hear from you. You can either write in or leave a message on the listener talkback line. Let me leave that number for you. 202-681-2126. That will allow you to leave a recording and I will play that back during an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Take care.